Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want you to open up to the book of First Chronicles, and we're going to be looking at chapter 29. We're in the middle of, I, I guess, what you would call a, a series on vision. And if you're new to the church, we want you to know that this is a little abnormal. This is uh, a special service because very rarely do we not do expository preaching. So we are committed to doctrine here at New Heights Church. We love God's word so much that we preach it verse by verse, line by line and precept upon precept. And so we're in the book of Acts, but we kind of took a break. So we, we finished all the way through chapter 12, and it was a good place to pause for our January vision series. And this week and next week, next week will be our last week. The following week, we'll jump right back into Acts. But the beginning of Acts focuses uh, really on the apostles uh, and, and what they, they do after Jesus goes back to heaven. And then the latter part of the book focuses on one of the greatest missionaries ever, and that's the Apostle Paul. And so we'll be jumping into that series, not next week, but next. And so we're, we find ourselves in, uh, in a series, and we, we just titled it Vision, but we'll do this every January where we kind of pitch the vision going forward for this next year. And last year, or last week, I got so excited, I didn't even finish my sermon and so I, I, we sent out notes, and I didn't even get all, to all the notes, but we kind of tackled a question, um, and, and it's a good question because we're growing as a church, and we've got people from all different walks of life, and they're at different seasons in their faith. And so one of the questions was, what is Pastor Enos talking about when he gets up there every week, and he, and he talks about tithes and offering? And we kind of answered that question. But there seems to be, and... and I've got to at least finish this before we jump in. There seems to be two thoughts. So Pastor Enos was absolutely right. All last week we talked, God doesn't need our money. He wants our heart, and, and that's the truth. And that's why in almost four years of being here, I've never preached on, on money because God doesn't need, need your money. He needs, he, what he wants is your heart. But God talks more about money in the New Testament than anything else, and, and the reason for that is probably because there's this trust issue when it comes to money. So there's two thoughts usually when it comes to, to tithes and offerings. Thought number one, I want to go over these with you real quick. God wants 10%. After that, you can do whatever you want with your money. So after, after the tithe, you've done your duty. In fact, many Christians believe that giving 10% is the key to getting God to make you even richer. Okay, we've heard this before, right? If you honor God with 10%, they say he's going to Heap more and more riches upon you, all of which you should enjoy as his thanks for your obedience. Now, let me just say that this position is, it, 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 well, it's just wrong. It's unchristian and for two major reasons. So listen to me, this is important. Number one, this position turns God into a servant who you use to increase your wealth. And I want to tell you something. You, you worship God, you don't tip him. Okay, you tip 10% to the server. You worship God, you don't tip him. Number two, this position sanctions a lifestyle that's directed at the acquisition of stuff. And for who? Yourself. Wrong, absolutely wrong. People who believe this about money, they're not living as disciples of Jesus. And so that's thought one. Give your 10%, you can do whatever you want. Or give your 10% because you wanna get richer. As a pastor, I'm gonna just be honest with you, uh, not just as a pastor, but as a believer, I've seen more damage from the prosperity gospel than anything else. Uh, you know, and I, I have refused. I was a pastor in Bangkok, Thailand, and I 
absolutely, I, I remember being, I was an associate, not the lead, and so I'd come up on the prayer team, and I remember time and time again, people coming up and saying, I'm gonna give this, will you pray that I reap a, we, we need this, and we need this, and we want a home, and I need more money, and I just absolutely refused to pray those prayers. Okay, so we don't, we don't give to God so we can get more wealth and acquire more wealth. Man, I want that Corvette, so I better give this into the offering. Just wrong. Here's thought number two. We, can, we can't have anything nice, and if we have been blessed with money, well, we're evil. Because money is evil and possessions are evil. Now, I'd like to clear up an issue real quick. Money's not evil. I've even heard people say this. Money is the root of all evil, but that isn't really what the Bible says either. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, 10, I don't know if I, no, I didn't, so we're gonna get to that in a minute. 1 Timothy 6, 10 says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. So the Bible says money is a root. That is one of many. It's a root of all kinds of evils. It's a very different meaning, and I hope you're catching that. So money is not evil. Money is not good. Money is neutral. Okay, it all depends on, on how you view it, what you do with it, and how you use it, all right? In fact, many people all throughout the Bible who were godly people were, were actually pretty wealthy. And, and that's not proof text for God wants to make me a millionaire so I can live this lavish lifestyle. But many people in scriptures were godly and, and had, had wealth. In fact, Deuteronomy says it's the Lord your God who gives you the power to get wealth. Abraham, who's called a friend of God, the only person who's called a friend of God, by the way, had a wealth that was on par of the kings of Canaan. He had 318 trained servants who served as, as his private militia in one case. And so what that means is he had 318 families that he was sponsoring. He was very wealthy when it came to his flocks and his herds. He, he was wealthy. Job was also very wealthy. And we know he went through trials and, and we know he lost all of his wealth. But we also know in Job 42 that at the end, God blessed him and multiplied that wealth more than what he had even in the beginning of his trials. And then there was Joseph. Joseph was second over all of Egypt, which means he was second in command over the world, which I think is fair to assume then he was the second richest man in the world. And yet he was a very, very godly young man. So it, it's not money that's evil, but how we handle any material thing, whether it's money or investments or, or anything that we want. All right, our relationship to the material world actually is a barometer of spiritual growth and maturity. So in fact, one of the first thermometers that Jesus sticks in the mouth of his followers to see if, if they, they get it with their finances, or, or get it is their finances. That's why Jesus says, we talked about it last week, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if Jesus can get that, he can get anything. If he has your treasure, he has you. So that's kind of the barometer there, all right? Now today... I wanna to talk to you about the dash that you see on a tombstone, all right? The dash that's between the year that somebody was born and the year that they die. A small little dash is what represents our time here on earth. And so my question today for you as we go through this is, what are you going to do with that dash? What legacy are you leaving? And for what kingdom are you leveraging your resources? So do you live as if you believe eternity is real and, 
and imminent? Or are you teaching your kids to do the same? Um, that's, that's what I want you to think about today. That's what I want you to wrestle with. You guys remember that movie? I think it came out in 2007 uh, starring Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. It was called The Bucket List. Anybody ever seen that movie? It's about the journey of two terminal patients with cancer and they find friendship and they discover redemption in their life by learning that family and friends are more valuable than any money in the world at the end. Um, and ever since that movie, I, I hear people talk about bucket lists. All right, even in the Christian church, I've seen a lot of people do sermon series on, on the bucket list. But, and, and just so you know, after that, I had a bucket list. I did. I, I made a bucket list, and, and on my bucket list were some spiritual things. Uh, 2007, I wasn't married, so on, on the bucket list, I said, I'm going to marry Liz Triplett. I did it. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, jump out of a plane with a parachute, uh, scuba dive in a, in a cage with a great white shark. I, I had some stuff on my bucket list. But, but here's the thing. Does that make any sense for a Christian, a bucket list? Hang with me. Does it make any sense? Because the book of Revelation tells us uh, that at the resurrection, Jesus ushers us into uh, a, new heaven, a new heavens and a new earth. And scholars actually say that new means renewed. So that means that heaven's not us floating around up in the clouds. <laughs> heaven's a new, renewed version of this earth, but without the curse of sin. So that means that up there, or, or, or in heaven, not up there, there I go, <laughs> means that in heaven I'm going to get to experience a, per, a perfected version of all things. I missed out on down here. All the mountains, the stars, the rivers, oceans, planets, animals, culture, arts, music are waiting for me in heaven. In fact, Revelation 21, 26 even says that God will bring into heaven the glory and honor of the nations, which means he brings in the best of the cultures. That means skyline is gonna be in heaven. You knew I was going there. <laughs> here's what I'm trying to get at this morning forget your bucket list forget the bucket list we don't, have, we don't have to waste our lives worrying about missing out on anything down here down here, there I go again with that talk here we don't have to waste our lives worrying about missing out no, what we need to be doing is focusing on leveraging our few remaining moments for eternity you see there's one thing we cannot do in heaven and that's tell others about Jesus. So if you want to put something on your bucket list, make it sharing the gospel with as many people as possible. Because listen to me, the people alive in the world during this generation have only one shot at hearing the gospel, and it's you and me. So you put that on your bucket list if you have to have one. But I'm telling you, before you pass away, I'd say forget your bucket list. And for eternity, you're going to be glad you did. That's what King David did. And I want to look at a very uh, special passage today from the book of First Chronicles. We're going to look at, I guess, 1 through 22, but we're going to fly over some of it, I promise. This particular passage is special to me because it played a huge role in shaping who I am today because it happened to be the verse that confirmed for my father that he would leave his job as an attorney for the state of Washington and pursue a career in full-time ministry. I still remember being a, a little boy 
and it was in our home in Bothell, Washington, and I was in the hallway. I loved to, I was just one of those little sneaky kids that would find a place to hide and eavesdrop. That's just what I did. In fact, my dad's office at his church had this weird, and I, don't, I would love to meet the architect that designed that church building and ask him why he did this, but there was this little, like, trap door that you could open and you could crawl in from the senior pastor's office into the executive pastor's office. Why, I don't know, weird, right? <laughs> but I used to love to hide in that office and eavesdrop on so many of my dad's conversations. Anyway, so I was doing this, my dad had a friend over and I was sitting down the hall eavesdropping and my dad told this particular person that he was going to leave his career in law and he was going to plant a church in, in the Seattle area. And I still remember as a little boy hearing that person tell my dad, Jim, what? are you doing what are you what are you what are you thinking leaving a secure job to pursue a career in ministry you've got a family to think about jim you've got four kids to think about and you're not promised a salary going into especially church planning you're not even promised a salary and you can forget your benefits remember you've got four kids that are going to need those benefits if you go plant this church jim what are you going to do why are you doing this? And I'll never forget my father's response. He says, I refuse to give God something that doesn't cost me. Now, not realizing at the moment that he was quoting King David, you talk about the feelings I had of fear because the words of that man struck a chord in the heart of this seven-year-old. Because when he kept saying, you have kids to worry about, how are you gonna put food on the table? How are you gonna pay bills? All a seven-year-old could think about is, why is dad doing this? I need to be fed and I need clothes. <laughs> Why would he do this? And what I witnessed in the following three years was a life responding to the gospel. See, a life responding to the grace and the mercy of the cross. A life responding to the forgiveness of his sins. A life responding to, by saying, here I am, master, and all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. And for my father, God was, God was asking him to leave his career in law and go plant a church. And so for him, that's what he did. Now, God's not asking all of you to do that. That was what God was asking my father to do. But God is asking all of you to forsake everything and follow him. It's what God does when you, get on, when you get on your knees and you confess him as Lord and Savior. What he wants is your life. Money's just one part of your life. And we'll get into it in a little bit, but, but again. Now, today, I'm gonna take you through the book of First Chronicles, or at least chapter 29, a few verses. And this is what you need to know. Now, the writers of Second Samuel and First Chronicles both choose a different event to conclude their account of David's life. And that summarized kind of what we learned from David. It's kind of like at the end of these, these books, they, they choose a story for us to kind of look at David's life and... Uh, it's like a quick snapshot of, of what David was all about. And, and if you look at the, the ending of 2 Samuel, you're gonna see David's life ends with him failing one more time and showing us that he's, he's not the king that Israel had searched for. Some of you are like, well, King David was the best king. Yeah, he was. He was a great king. He was a man after God's own heart. He had a lot of failures. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But, but he wasn't the king that they were searching for. 
You know, they were still missing the mark here. Uh, the Israelites did what we do. We, we often look to man to be the savior. But man fails over and over and over again. And, and I've always said this, look, don't look at me because <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm gonna disappoint you. I'm gonna let you down. You've gotta look to Jesus. So don't look to the guy to your left or right. You look to Jesus. Man will always let you down. Jesus won't. Okay, so then in First Chronicles, which is what we're looking at today, we're gonna see that it ends by showing us that David took up an offering in response to God's grace in his life. So one thing I want you to understand this morning is that even though both writers choose, chose a different event to summarize his life, both accounts show us that David's last act as a, was, was a response to the gospel. His last act was a response to God's grace in both stories. So you and I in our life have a choice on how we are going to respond to God's invitation of salvation. His invitation to grace and mercy. In 2 Samuel, after God stops a plague, David buys a field where God had shown mercy and he dedicates that piece of ground as the place for the building of the future temple. But the most interesting part of this entire passage, all of it comes in chapter, it's a few ways back, but verse 24, in the the text, David goes to Aruna, I think that's how you announce that name, so pregnant moms, I think it's a man, Aruna, yeah, so if you're having a boy, there you go, great biblical name, he's the guy who owned the field, and so David goes to him to buy it, and the man says, hey, you can just have the field, you don't need to buy it, I'll give it to you. But David responds a certain way, and I want you to look at the response with me. He says, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You want to know what King David was saying here. He refuses to give God something that he could get for free. He can't give God something that didn't cost him something. David gets it. David knew that God had given him so, so much and he wanted to show his love towards God in response. First Chronicles shows David taking up an offering for the building of that temple and then praying a prayer that is absolutely amazing in the sense that the prayer spells out for us David's whole life philosophy. It's absolutely amazing. And the legacy that David was going to leave, and here it is, a life that is so grateful for and amazed by God's grace, it wants to respond. So if you have your Bible, like I said, 1 Chronicles 29, and I need to summarize the first part of this story for time's sake, David takes up this huge offering for the temple. This temple was not just going to be a beautiful building or even a big monument to God. No, David knew that this was going to be a place where Israel could meet with God and where future generations of Israelites could learn about the God who delivered them. So God had appointed David to be a spirit, the spiritual leader of Israel, and so what David does is he leads by example. He wants to be the first to give to the offering, and this wasn't some show. It wasn't some spectacle, okay? This is what leaders do. They lead by example, and, and that's what David did here, okay? Verse four tells us that 3,000 talents of gold and 7,000 talents of silver was given. Now, for context, a talent was about 75 pounds. So think about that. That's 225,000 pounds of gold and 525,000 pounds of silver. 
All I gotta say, and to all my ushers out there, aren't you glad we have plastic credit cards and we can give online? Dude, David's ushers would've looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the, in the 80s, <laughs> taking up those offerings. Okay, more context. One talent was about 10 years wages for the average worker. Think about that. David gave 3K of gold and 7K of silver. In today's terms, that's about $5 billion. $5 billion. Some scholars say this was probably David's entire personal treasury. So in other words, he didn't give out of his treasuries, he gave his treasuries. This was a sacrificial gift and it would have totally, absolutely changed David's lifestyle. So you can't say, well, it was easy for David to give because he was the king and he was rich. Listen to me, he gave everything, everything. He gave till it hurt, he gave. In fact, kings in the ancient world, and you have to understand, David didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to give. He had already met requirements. He was going above the requirements. Kings in the ancient world were considered to be gods. Everything, and I wish I could say it was just for all the other cultures and not Israel, but they were so influenced by all the other cultures. Everything flowed towards them, the kings. That was the culture, and that was, that was the norm. And, and so some of you, again, you're thinking not Israel, right? <laughs> well, unfortunately, go and read the Bible about the kings of Israel, because unfortunately, most of them just assumed the culture around them lived like they were gods, thought they were gods. So really important that we understand that, that in this act, David is giving all of himself to God and saying it's all from you and for you and for your purposes. And so when David did this, the people also responded. In verse eight, turn everything in, into this guy who makes amazing stone. By the time the offering plate's been passed around and it's all over, they've, they have resources coming from everywhere for the building of the temple. I mean, the people respond. King David does it and then the people respond. This offering was huge. It was huge because it represented a really, really big part of their economy. And as a nation and their livelihood, uh, it's all being redirected into ministry. And so, and, and all of this is done. So Solomon, David's son, when he comes to the throne, was gonna be able to build the temple with all cash and no debt. Somebody say amen. Debt is bad. Repeat it. Debt is bad. <laughs> it is. Debt's horrible. Ball and chain. They, don't, they didn't go into debt building God's temple. The people actually experienced a whole lot of peace doing it too. They experienced a whole lot of joy in giving. And, and now I get it, right? Talking about giving away money, it's kind of scary because I mean without money we can't survive, right? Money's our survival and so the idea of giving money away can really freak out a whole lot of people. If a preacher starts talking about money, people start getting squirmy in their chairs and all of a sudden everybody's gotta go to the bathroom. Usher, shut and lock those doors. Just, <laughs> just teasing, just teasing. People get nervous, you talk about money, but that's not what we see in our text today. These people didn't respond that way. In fact, they experienced something different from fear. They had peace and joy. Now, peace and joy, that's not fear. <laughs> Am I right? And for most, for most people, money is the source of security and the source of the good life, so why would we ever even think of giving it away? But for these people, and what we're about to see is their real security and their real delight was in God, in God. So for them, money's just another thing because 
Why? Well, God's their security. His mission is their purpose. His promise is their power. I, it's, I didn't always believe this, right? I remember the first time I got my paper out. I, I came from a pastor's home. I just told you the story. He left from being an attorney where we were looking at homes on uh, Lake Washington in the Seattle area. Lake Washington, by the way, is where Bill Gates lives. I think dad was moving his way up, and life could have been really different for us. And then he goes and he plants this home missions church in, in, in a school. And so dad always bought me the Walmart shoes. Ugh. Yeah, I, I, br- I blame my dad for my bad knees because I never could play basketball in a pair of Air Jordans. Now, when I got a paper out when I was in the seventh grade, I had just enough from that first paycheck to buy Air Jordans, and I was so excited. And I'll never forget when my dad told me, well, you're forgetting your tithe. What tithe? <laughs> he, said, he said, you gotta give 10% back to God because this is a gift from God. I said, Dad, I did the paper out. I went out. He goes, it's God's. I said, if I give 10%, I can't buy the Air Jordans. He said, you give 10%. By the end of the, this conversation, I was getting nowhere. My dad was like, you're giving 20%. 10% tithe, 10% to missions. And I, it, you know, it took me a long time to understand this, but money sometimes, it competes with God as the source of our life, right? So it's true, that's reality. So let's not try to pretend it isn't. And then when we view money the wrong way, it can lead to greed, and greed is dangerous, very dangerous. Greed is, it's really tricky little thing too because it's easy for us as Christians to excuse greed, right? We're tricky about it, you know, because after all, we need money to live, right? Okay, and the truth is that oftentimes we try our hardest to just, the truth is we try to justify any sins. That's our human nature, that's what we do. I've heard it all the time. Humanity has a problem taking ownership for for one's own life. It's just, if one struggles with lust, they're gonna blame it on all kinds of things. I've even heard people try to blame lust on their spouse. If one struggles with lying, well, we justify why we had to lie, right? If one struggles with pride, we'll justify it by saying, well, I just wanted appreciated for what I did. Humanity does this. We just just don't take ownership. Greed can sometimes be easier than any other sin to justify because after all, we need it. We need it. We'll hang on to money because we need it and therefore we have to hold on tightly to it. Okay? But in our text today, we see something pretty amazing. Here is the power of money is broken so the people could give freely and joyfully. And the power is broken because this, if you're taking notes, write it down. The people have found God to be a better source of security and delight than money. So look with me. Oh, yeah, we're there. I'm good. Look with me at verse 10. It says, Therefore David blessed the Lord in, in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Now would you look at that? Do you see what's happening here? David goes and blesses the Lord, and he does that because what the people gave was a direct response to what they had seen about God. Radical giving. Listen, radical giving, kingdom-minded giving, gospel-driven giving, is never really obligation-driven. It's always a response to the greatness and the generosity of God. Always. So listen listen to this in verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth. 
is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So what is David talking about? What's, what, what victor is he talking about here? He's talking about all the battles that have ever been won, all the progress that Israel has made up to this point, the fact that they aren't slaves anymore to the Egyptians. It's all, all because of God's gracious work in them. He's saying, you took us from nothing and you have given us everything. Now listen to me. Pause for a minute. We're in 2024 and I'm talking directly to you. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ today, I want to remind you of all the great victories you now have. I want to tell you about how you have inherited, if you have put your faith in Jesus, what, what, all, the, all that you've inherited. If you, if you repent of your sin and you come to Jesus in faith, you inherit everything of eternal value. Everything. And what's so amazing is that God's salvation, it's a full salvation. You don't get half or three quarters. It's the, it's the full deal. You get all of it. You don't have to work to stay in God's good books. You don't have to continue to earn God's merit. That's not how it works, okay? Listen to me and listen real good. It's through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit that you are accepted, loved, and adopted into the family of God. There is nothing that you did to earn salvation. There is nothing that I did to earn salvation. It's not because of how good we are. It's not because God's looking down and saying, that Justin, he's all right. He's trying really hard, I'm gonna save him. Nope. It's because the grace and mercy of God. That's it. So most people value what the world can offer and they value it way too much. In reality, it's not, that, it's not really all that it's cracked out to be. Cracked up to be, whatever. You guys know I love those sayings. I get them all wrong all the time. You know what I'm trying to say. The world is kind of like the gift that you give your kids on Christmas and you're really excited about it. You've spent a lot of money on it, and they play, for it, play with it for like a day or two and get sick of it. I hate it when that happens, <laughs> right? Listen, to be at best, that's what the, the world has to offer us, like that Christmas. You're, I mean, it's, it's nothing. Temporary pleasure, temporary gratification, that's it. But in God, in, in Christ, they, he gives us everything of eternal value. So let me encourage you to consider the wonder of God's saving work today. That's what I want you to think about. Scripture calls it, in Hebrews, such a great salvation. Why? Because it's so beyond belief. Better than anything that this world can offer. That's why in Titus, I don't know if I have it. No, it's okay. You guys, give it up for our sound team and our tech team. They have to work with me every week. Titus chapter three, verse four through seven, listen to this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here's what I want you to do today. I want you to be like David. I want you to stop right now and just be in awe of salvation. You and I, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have experienced something amazing. His grace has been poured out into our life. We don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. It's just amazing. Isn't that incredible? Think about it. 
That's what David's doing here. And then you look in verse 12. No, verse 4. I'm all over the place. Just ignore me. You look at verse 12. It says, both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So after, after David praises God for all the amazing things that God has done, and again, for you and me, we have something greater, by the way. We have Jesus. Did you hear me? <laughs> and boy, has he done a lot for us. And in the midst of David thanking God for all that he's done, he has this other realization. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have, we have given you. So he understands something really important here, okay? God had no reason to show the Israelites this much grace. They didn't do anything to deserve this kind of grace. Again, I can relate. God had absolutely no reason to show Justin Hansen any grace at all. I had done nothing to deserve it, nothing. This is why one of my favorite worship songs of all time is, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive and well, your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you in all I do. I honor you. Right? Verse 15, it says, For we are strangers before you and aliens as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. We need to understand that there is, there is nothing permanent about this world. We didn't bring anything into it, and when we die, we can't take anything out. Were it not for what God is doing in us and for us in eternity, our lives would have absolutely no point, no purpose. He gives you purpose. That's why we want at New Heights Church everybody to discover their purpose. You look at verse 16. I know I'm going to have it somewhere. Yeah, we're doing, we're there. We're there, we're there. How about that? Oh, oh, Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things, and now I have seen your people who are, who are present here offering freely and joy, joyously to you. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. And now we, we, we come to the end of the story, really. And in verse 22, I want you to see this. I'm gonna jump a little bit for you because I want you to see some. Verse 22, and they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. And they anointed him as, and they, they made Solomon the son of David king the second time, and they anointed him as prince for the Lord and Zadok as priest. So, I am a mess today. Just ignore this. <laughs> but really, from this moment, after verse 22, David quietly passes off the scene. All right? And, and this week and, and next week, I want to show you four truths from this prayer that were the foundation of David's life, his entire life philosophy. And it should also be the foundation of ours, by the way. Four truths, these four truths have to be the foundation of your life. If you have put your faith 
and placed your trust in Jesus. These have to be them. I'm going to name all four, but I promise I won't go all, over all four today. Number one, know that God's grace is a game changer. Number two, know that everything we have comes from God. And number three, know that this life is temporary and eternity is forever. And fourth, know that the best investment you can make is in God's kingdom. So I'm only gonna go over one today. And everybody says, amen. <laughs> Next week we're gonna cover the last three. But you wanna leave a legacy, the first thing you need to do is experience God's grace. God's amazing grace. And once you get this, it changes everything. David knew God's amazing grace. He was a recipient of God's amazing grace. If you read 2 Samuel 11, David, he's at his pinnacle. He's, his throne has been established. His enemies have been subdued. And preparations are being made for building the temple in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, David falls into horrific sin. When he steals a, another man's wife, not just another man, but one of his close friends, he steals his wife and then has her husband murdered as part of the cover-up. He murders his own friend to cover up what he's done. And the Lord then sends the prophet Nathan to confront David over his sin. David repents. God forgives. David experiences God's amazing grace. Now he still had to suffer the consequences of his sin, but he experienced this amazing grace of God and he experienced forgiveness. When David is confronted by Nathan, he confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan the prophet declares, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So this is what you need to understand. God's forgiveness of David includes this. Number one, uh, temporary judicial forgiveness. The Lord literally set aside the requirement of the law. Because in Leviticus 20 and 24, Guess what happens to those who murder and those who commit adultery? They're put to death. So David's life is spared. His throne's not taken from him. But he also experienced spiritual forgiveness. So God reconciles David to himself. In fact, that's why David later, later writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. See, Paul later uses the example of God's forgiveness of David to show that God's way of salvation has always been to the unworthy by grace through faith. That's why we call it amazing grace. Okay, so David knew God's grace. Back to our text that we looked at today. David insisted on paying full price for the field and he would not give to God that which cost him nothing. What's being shown, if you're writing notes here, what's being shown to you is that God doesn't need anything but people touched by God's grace want to give back to him, okay? So a couple of times Jesus had a, had a woman come in and wash his feet. One of those times included a woman breaking open a very expensive, expensive bottle of perfume over his feet. Almost like today if you had a bottle of Creed cologne. Stuff runs like $600 and somebody brought it and broke it over Jesus' feet. And you're always gonna have those people that be like, what a waste of money. You could have used that and you could have done this. And this is, uh, you know, both, both, both stories people objected. You know, one time they even said, do you, do you not realize what kind of woman this is to Jesus? So they're attacking her character. The other time somebody said, what a waste of money. And, and Jesus said both times, let her alone. In other words, shut up, be quiet. 
And then he said this, those who have been forgiven of much love much in response. (laughs) In other words, if you have any concept of how gracious God has been to you, pouring yourself out for him is the natural response. It isn't giving your money to God because he needs it. Let's be honest, God doesn't need our money. Our God's not a weak, poor God who needs stuff. He made everything with one word. He has a limitless supply of resources. He has no needs, he never had one. And even if he did have one, he's not gonna come and ask us. That's why Psalms 50, 12 through 15 says this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. I love it. God is saying here, I wouldn't come to you if I had a need. I could create a whole universe full of yous if I wanted. What God wants from us is an offering of gratitude for what he's done for us. And if you're taking notes, write this down. He wants us to sit amazed and in astonishment at how great his salvation is and respond to it appropriately. That's what he wants from us. David saw all that God had done for him and he wanted to give in response. When he went to set up, set up the plot of land the temple was gonna be built on, he insisted on buying it, even though the owner wanted to give it to him for free. David said, I will not give unto the Lord, my God, that which cost me nothing. David insisted on paying because he knew the issue was not providing a need. Listen to me, this is really important, okay? He knew the issue was not providing a need. That's, the field was gonna be provided either way. Instead, it was the statement the gift made about David's heart. It was a statement. There are some gifts that are valuable for the good they can do in the world, and some gifts that are priceless for the statement they make about the heart of the giver and the value of the God they serve. You understand that? The widow and the mite, one of my favorite stories, she gives all that she has. Did you know in today's world that's like one-eighth of a cent? And yet it made it in the Bible and Jesus wanted to make a point of it. Why? Because she gave all that she had. If David was grateful to God because of what he had seen God do. How much more should we be grateful for what God has done for us? David was blessed with a temple, but we have been blessed with Jesus, the true temple whose flesh was torn so that we could enter the presence of God. Does that not do something to your heart? Do you not want to pour yourself out for him in gratitude? Aren't you glad, listen to me, aren't you glad Jesus didn't, didn't tithe 10% of his blood? Can I just say that? Aren't, aren't you glad he gave it all? Our responsibility is not to give up our 10%, go on our self-serving ways, but to pour out our entire lives recklessly for him and for others, just as he did for us. If we looked at our gifts over, over the last year, and I, I, I again, I tell you, I, I don't get up and just preach at you. I have to prepare these sermons, and you know what God's word does? It makes you uncomfortable. It convicts you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're at in life, God's word convicts you. And if it convicts you, you're reading it right. I had to look at my gifts over the last year, and, and I had to ask, what do they say about how I feel about God, about his worth to me, you know? Listen, again, back to the story. The worship team can come up. I wanna close with this story. This text was so powerful to me. It's so, 
It's so special and important to me. In f- I can't share that part until next week. But, but this changed my life, this, this verse, because it changed the course of my dad's life. And so when I was young and he, he left that law career and he went to plant that church, and I, I still remember us planting that church because remember, giving all of yourself is not just money. I'm not talking about money today. I'm talking about you, your life. You pour out everything. So we went, we went from dad being an attorney to dad planting in this, this uh, home missions church that he started. We started in, in our living room in our house, and then we moved into the gym of a school, and we had to, my dad went, they, they could only raise enough money to buy this old nasty van. I was for sure the bottom was gonna fall out. It was so rusted. We'd load it up with chairs, and we had to do like eight trips. We had to wake up so early in the morning, and Dad would make us do it. And I think any kid just hates that. You don't want to wake up at four in the morning and load chairs. And we would do that. And he he left that career. He went into pastoral ministry, and we got to see that church grow to become a healthy church. And and then when it was becoming healthy, Dad's called again into missions to give up this and to to take our family and to move to Panama where we were going to serve as missionaries. Nine months into our itineration cycle, my dad is diagnosed with a brain tumor. He battled this brain tumor for eight or nine, it was nine years actually technically, nine years before he died. And I've shared about my dad before. My dad again when he was an attorney, I have these memories of watching my father on TV whenever he would do press conferences from a big case. I would record it on a VHS. How many of you remember VHS? (laughs) All you have to do is put it in and hit record. And I would record my dad. I'd invite my friends over. I was so proud. That's my dad on TV. And uh, and then he was was a great preacher. He was a, a really good Bible teacher and even taught some courses at the Northwest University and the Assemblies of God. And all of a sudden, he's diagnosed with this brain tumor, and he loses his gift. He can't even speak. He can't talk. He can't do anything. And all of a sudden, mom becomes the missionary. And dad, we don't know what to do with dad. And so they let dad put spiral bindings on books. And he, he you know, would sort paper. And, and that was about all he can do. And, and throughout those nine years, it was just brutal to watch this man deteriorate in front of you. This guy, as in his senior year, he benched 380 pounds. You, you did not hear, I said that right. It was not a mistake. 18 years old, he was benching 380 pounds. Uh, he had a small man syndrome, so he worked out a lot. He was smaller than me. When he died, he was, he was probably 80 pounds. 80 pounds. And, you know, all of us kids had to watch that, and we had to struggle through that. And I think what I struggled with the most was watching him, I know this is gonna sound weird, but watching my father be happy through it all. Because I was mad. How could you give everything to God and be okay with this as the outcome? How can that happen? But see, you thought we were talking about money today, but I'm talking about the fact that God wants your heart. You see, money is about trust. When you give your life to Jesus, it's all or nothing. He wants it all. And if you can give your life to Jesus, you could put your faith and your trust in him. Then you trust the heavenly father for the outcome. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. 
And, and I remember so many different times arguing with my dad, and I regret it to this day, because here he is battling, and he's, he's dealing with two angry kids. These two boys are just upset with it all. And I remember I'd get so mad, Dad, how can you do that? I don't get it, how can you smile? How can you go praise God? I don't wanna go praise God. And he would always quote Psalms 8410, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to live with all the comforts of this world. He said, I gave my life to him and I trust him, all of it. I have no problem. If he doesn't want me to use my voice for his kingdom, I'm okay with it. I trust my father. He gave it all. So here's what I'm saying. Is this about money? No. It's not about money. Does the Bible talk about money? Yes, because the money's so tied to our hearts. This is about trust. I'm asking you, who have you placed your trust in? And this is what, you talk about vision, this is why we're talking about it. Because I did not come off the mission field four years ago to pastor a church and just be status quo. No, I came because I believe that God wants to use the local church to change the world. That's his plan. And I believe in this church. I love the history of this church. I love Pastor Hugh Rosenberg and Pastor Brad Rosenberg. And I love the foundation that has been laid. And I love the fact that God isn't done writing the story for New Heights. And we are going to build a movement. Well, God's going to do it. We're just going to be faithful. He's going to build a movement because he wants a church full of people who have surrendered their entire life and their heart. They trust him completely. Money's just another thing. He wants all of you. And I promise you will never regret it.